So right off the bat, Jason Blair, what do you say to those critics asking right now? And you know that they are asking, what the hell is she doing giving this guy a platform? He's still a disgrace. <laughs> I say ask Rosemary. <laughs> <laughs> This is not the first time I've had Jason talk to uh, to um, usually classes about ethics and uh, and journalism and ethics and truth and journalism. And some say, as, as they will this time, that it's an odd choice. I do not think so. Jason Blair, for those of you who don't know, don't remember, were not even born at the time, uh, did fake news before it was popular. And uh, I find him to be the perfect person now to talk in depth about disinformation and lying and trust in the media. And Jason, I appreciate your willingness to address these issues. Um, it's not the first time, as I say, but you have tried to move on from the scandal of 2003. Yeah, uh, and just Rosemary, to that mm -hmm. point, I actually think when I look back on my life right now and I think about the qualities that... I like in me and then I hear other people say they like in me. It all really comes from that, that scandal. I am a more humble, more compassionate, more understanding person because of that. So in some ways, yes, I've moved on from the scandal, but actually in many ways, the scandal itself forged me into who I am, who I think is probably a better human being. Okay, so I, I'm I'm going to ask you, or I'll do it myself if you don't want to, to recap that scandal. And uh, and and my bigger question is, as you look back at it, do you have some sense of pride, Jason? You did this better than any other cheat in journalism, and there have been hoaxes since the start of journalism. Yeah, so I would say there's a sense of pride in getting there and getting to the times as young as I am, but certainly not. Uh, pride in what I did um, when I was there in terms of what, you know, has become, you know, a, a pretty horrible black eye um, for, for journalism. And it's something that, you know, still to this day, people use to beat up the New York Times and other publications, which I don't think is really fair because certainly no one at the New York Times nor I intended um, to deceive people. And so the quick version of the story, and I, I let me know if I leave anything key out there. Um, in high school, I became really interested in journalism. I'm a naturally curious person, and I always thought it could help people. I dove in with two feet, um, coming out of high school, working for a local newspaper over the summer, Went off to college, worked at the student newspapers there, um, was able to get internships at a bunch of places um, in a Metro Bureau of the uh, Boston Globe and the Washington Bureau, also at the Washington Post. It put me in a good position um, with all my journalism experience to be a part of a uh, minority recruitment program that the Times had. And back then, every year, the Times probably brought in about two young journalists who were either in graduate school or undergraduates um, as a part of this uh, diversity program. And the year that I was there, I think they, they offered it to 10 of us. It was that good of a class. It's really amazing class. Greg Winter was in that class. Monica Drake was in that class. 
um, a lot of uh, really, really neat journalists. Um, after a couple of years at the Times, what basically happened to me um, was, you know, I think I think the easiest way to describe it from like an internal perspective, from my own perspective, is I simply, you know, over time I developed um, instead of sort of dealing with stress or mental health th- issues through healthy uh, avenues, I developed a drug and alcohol problem. That drug and alcohol problem is not the reason for the scandal or even close to the reason for the scandal. But I ended up through the help of people at the Times going to rehab where it's relevant to the scandal is really that I, my younger self, was convinced that there would be no second chances. So as I started to develop um mental health issues. And I was on some pretty big assignments like the sniper shooting, um, the after uh, or the beginning of the the war in Iraq and a number of other things. Um, I really couldn't. The 9-11 shootings. Yeah. Or the 9-11 attack. Yeah. Um, I, I really was not able to function or to do my job. And in order to mask that, I started doing things like um, instead of going to a scene, looking at the photographs that were in the um, system and painting a picture of the scene that way or whatever other technique I could to try and just simply do my job without asking for help. And then over time, that deteriorated and deteriorated and deteriorated into sort of plagiarism where um I couldn't find information and then toward the end into some fabrication. But I think a lot of what drove that scandal, I don't blame it on mental health. I really blame it on pride, right? I was too proud to ask for help, um, too ambitious to ask for help, um, not humble enough to recognize that, hey, we're all humans and this is a part of what happens there. So anyway, blows up into a giant scandal. It is painful. I luckily for me, I ended up through the help of the times um, and family and other people like that, getting the mental health treatment I needed. But Hal Raines, who is the executive editor of the paper at the time, and Gerald Boyd, who is the managing editor, both lost their jobs. They had sort of already lost the newsroom, but it became, I wouldn't say the final straw. It was more like the final baseball bat um, that right. took them down. And you know, I I think is that a good summary? Is that's that's a pretty good that? summary. There there have been investigations since that you actually began lying before the New York Times, even as early as high school. Yeah, I I think those uh, have suggested that it goes back to college, and I I mean over time, I I have no problem being honest about things when people tell me about them, but the. Uh, you know, the stories from college are not true. Um, and so, you know, I you mean that you mean the stories that you lied in stories were not true. Yeah, it wasn't true that I lied that okay. in stories there, you know, there have been it's like anything that gets raked over the coals. There's certainly things like during one of my internships where, for example, the Globe found errors that existed in stories that hadn't been corrected. But best I can tell is it truly started at the times. And then I can, you know, pretty much refute 
because I was there or other people were there. Some of those earlier stories. So in all, though, of 73 national stories you did for the Times, uh, lies or made up stuff was found in 36 of them. And the Times took four full pages uh, to print out a postmortem of how this had been allowed to occur, how a, a new reporter, a, a baby reporter got away with this at the at the one of the greatest newspapers in the world. And um, uh, the reverberations are still felt today. So let me start with yeah, a couple of them. Hold, okay. hold on to that just for one second and think about that, right? What newspaper or publication today would spend four pages of their paper holding themselves accountable? That's not something that happens anymore. And, you know, I'm not grateful for it, but it really, it, I didn't love the, I didn't love going through the process, but it sort of says something about the times that they were willing to do that at huge cost to their people. So anyway, I'm sorry. Well, no, that that's part of it. The paper was plainly trying to win back trust from readers, which you cost them. Do you think you've, you and, and trust in the news business overall right now has never been worse. Are you responsible for that? Well, I mean, it's hard to tell, right? Because I can't pick people's brains and get to, get to uh, you know, an idea of what the impact is. Certainly, I think my scandal, uh, the situation with Judy Miller, where there was bad reporting on weapons of mass destruction, but it goes back to, you know, even Janet Cook at the Washington Post, who fabricated a story about um heroin uh oh, yeah. being she, addicted to she, heroin she yeah. won the pulitzer so she right, beat you right. yeah she beat me and then stephen glass who had a right. was it the new republican had that movie so those things all all of us con um contributed to it i would say what the the big difference between those and mine in terms of the negative impact was because unlike Judy Miller, who may have just been misled by a disinformation campaign, mine was true fabrication of things at the most prominent publication. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, trust had been going down in the media for a long time because of polarization and politics and, you know, uh, the sort of death of the newspaper industry. And I, I do think that there is a phase, a distinct period that I remember where people started coming to me and giving me examples of like problematic stories they saw or problems and saying things like everybody's like you now or you were now. And I so I think we are in a new wave, if that makes yep. sense, a new yep. wave of distrust. Well, well, we are. And actually, cheating is easier now than ever, where everyone's talking about chat, GPT, uh, artificial intelligence uh, is making deep fakes uh, easier than ever and more convincing than ever. Um, what could I was talking to a journalism professor who's telling me that he is using AI to catch AI cheating in his stories. It's kind of crazy, right? right? Having right. to use AI to catch. Sorry. It's it's true though the technology you you were called on the cutting edge of uh, cheating technology back in two thousand and three. I wonder what you might have accomplished had there been some of these devices now. Well, yeah, I, yeah. Well, the, that is one thing, but I would say that there's probably another thing. You know, I was at the cusp of an era where 
news organizations, and I think it would probably be the same at the Times for me right now, but we're very focused on truth, accuracy, um, and and that being their sustaining driving force, right? Headlines were important. Um, having stories first were really important, but the type of sensationalism sensationalism that's become mainstream now was relegated to tabloids in the New York Post, like the New York Post. Now we're in an era where everybody's like the New York Post and people care a lot less about being right. So I think even more important than the technology is the framework and the attitude that people operate with now, you know, sensationalism, clicks and headlines um, over the truth. We can just fix the truth tomorrow. And I think that's a really dangerous space for if you have... um, because this business is all based on trust. But if for whatever reason you have a journalist you can't trust, that's a dangerous place to be. Yeah, that, that, that was you, we know that. And our Mayo on the Brink is brought to you by the Apple Barn and Country Bake Shop in Bennington, Vermont. Famous for its legendary apple cider donuts, pies, gifts, and for their corn mazing covered bridge. Go to theapplebarn.com to learn more about the spirit of Vermont you can find at the Apple Barn. Jason, would fact-checking as it exists now have stopped you back in 2003? I don't think so. I think it's worse, actually. Mm-hmm. I, I I think in reality... Uh, you know, reliance on tools is only going to get you so far and whatever systems you build are tend to be transparent. So people will find ways around those systems, regardless of what their motive is. If there's somebody like me who's just trying to survive or there's somebody who's deliberately trying to deceive or there's somebody trying to get fame, whatever system you build, um, you know, people will find a way around it. I almost think it's more important if you want to decrease some of those problems, two things that I, I come to mind, like hiring people who are trustworthy, regardless of what it is, and editors, producers, people who lead news organizations, instilling the importance of trust and accuracy. You know, you're not going to beat people with tools. You're going to beat them with values. It's mm-hmm. going to change with values. Uh, one of the other things the the Times and other newspapers did in the wake of the Blair scandal is hire ombudsmen, people who acted as a, an intermediary between readers and uh, the newspaper. Most of them have gone away now, uh, the result of budget cuts. Did, did Would they have deterred you? Was that, a, oh, was that a good idea? I think they were a great idea. I thought, you know, people like Geneva Overholzer, who's the former um, Des Moines uh, Des Moines Register editor served as the Washington Post ombudsman for um, a long time, and the number of sort of like serious problems that were averted by what she did, whether it was something like the newspaper was reporting in the wrong direction or not considering certain facts, or stuff that may not even made it into the column, but that she raised as flags. I thought that those are super powerful, and the Times did that. Um, with two ombudsmen, I think two, it may have been three, in the aftermath of me. And I think most people in the newsroom who I talked to thought made it a better, more reliable paper. Mm -hmm. Um, And it gave you an avenue outside of the chain of command, 
right? Because internal politics in my situation played a role Mm -hmm. in it because the people who were concerned about me didn't necessarily know about the plagiarism and fabrication, but they were concerned about me. Didn't, because of the politics in the newsroom and what was going on at the time, didn't have an easy avenue to raise their complaints. They basically weren't talking to the senior leadership. And ombudsman would have given them an avenue to express those concerns. That's an interesting insight. Uh, Jason, do you, when you see it, recognize fake news? Can you say, oh, my God, that story's not true. Beheaded babies in Gaza, not true. Right. Can you do that? Yeah. So I would say for me, um, I think there are probably two buckets I'll put it in. Uh, In the plagiarism bucket, usually it's pretty easy because I tend to like obsess on topics. I'll read articles on the same topic over and over again. And I'll be like, wait, I've heard that line before. Um, On the fabrication, it's really simple. Like the vast majority of things follow Oxum's razor, right? Like the simplest thing, the most, the thing that has the smallest number of um, logical leaps is most likely to be correct. So anytime I see something that does not seem like simple or doesn't seem normal, I want to see extraordinary evidence for it. And when I don't see extraordinary evidence for it, I generally assume that this is not true or this is not made up or I'm going to put an asterisk beside this Mm -hmm. until I see more information. So I think it's yes. And I think to some extent it may be because of my experience, but it's just because I'm a critical thinker, right? And I'm not prone to believe things just because I want to believe them or they fit within my political views because that has nothing to do with the truth. And so, I mean, you're kind of getting at the opposite side of this. There's a responsibility among news organizations to be accurate, to get to the best truth they can. But as a citizen, as a human who's consuming, I think I have a responsibility to be discerning in what I consume, right? Like your example from Gaza, like, does that sound true? Does that sound likely? Have we heard of that before? You know, what motive or what reason or how could it have happened? You really, you know, I I put an asterisk by that one pretty quickly, for example. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but last year, some professors at the University of Birmingham did a really interesting study of your work. And they looked at um, articles that were real, that you actually wrote and reported, and some that you made up. And they found a distinct difference in the linguistic style. In your fake news, you had a less confident tone. You were not as as assured. And Mm -hmm. there was less information. Uh, You wrote less concisely than you did in real stories, where you actually knew what was going on and were were printing it out. And the purpose of this study is um, long range. They're hoping to come up with, here's the pattern. If you see this, an AI would be helpful with this. This is possibly fake news. Yeah, like the idea of, and I can see how that could go several different ways, Um, you know, I, the the one caution I would put on something like this, and I would love to see the story, is that it's like all things. If you talk to like an FBI profiler, or if you're a journalist and you interview people, that or you know a police detective, there's no like tip off really in body language, linguistics to when someone's lying. It's the baseline. You know, you need to know their baseline because. 
tapping my feet could be a sign that I'm lying. Tapping your feet could be a sign that you're anxious. So until you really know the baseline of someone, and I'd love to see where this research can go, um, it, it, you know, I, I think it's really hard to identify deception. Like you got to know their culture. You've got to know them. Um, but certainly if you could see when people are moving off their baseline, what you're saying does not surprise me though at all, because in many ways, the words that you just used that you described like less confident, fewer details, less sure of myself. That's certainly the way that I felt during the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of, and of course the other one was uh, you. There was a lack of specificity of where the information came yep. from. That's not yep. a surprise. Um, yeah, right. Talk to me now about uh, Carissa Thompson. She's the Fox X Fox sideline reporter who uh, admitted, apparently not for the first time recently, that um, she made up stuff. If, she, if a coach was late coming out or didn't want to talk to her, and she had time to fill, she just made up some quotes, things that were innocuous that no coach would really complain about. And she never got fired for it. Isn't she grand? Yeah, it seems so strange to me, by the way, in taking that just as a simple example, that um, there was a, and I I hate to sound like the guy hearkening for the grand old times, because the grand old times were all that grand. Um, but it's striking to me in stories like that, where people are giving or pa- given passes for that, which I think has, I think when you look at it in the bigger picture, obviously it's wrong. Obviously you shouldn't be doing it. Obviously it's harmful, but it sends a broader message to other journalists uh, that they can get away with the stuff, that they can cut the corners. And what really scares me personally is the message it sends to journalism students, our future reporters, writers, anchors, editors. Um, And now I know organizations like Fox are saying this isn't okay. And we're, you know, giving this person a mulligan, but I hate to tell you, I think the message that's sending those journalism students is this is okay. I'd be curious, what are your, what have your students said about things like that or people that you know who are young in journalism? Uh, Are they surprised by it or are they? No, I don't think they're surprised. I do think that there's Mm. a pervasive idea that all journalists lie and make up things, but they also parrot back what we pound into them, which is you never make up anything. So they tell tell us what we want to hear. I I want you to consider something deeper, though. Um, What exactly is a fact? And are they that important anymore? Isn't there an argument to be made for uh, truth getting out better when you use fiction or or put it in a movie rather than stick to the whole immutable total truth. Yeah. Well, I do think that there's something to be said for the idea that um, it really depends on what kind of truth you're talking about. If you're looking for a unifying theory or a big picture understanding of take something like the Israeli Palestinian conflict the day-to-day stories on that are not going to get you to a broader truth. And maybe the 500-page history book is going to be too dense. You might better tell that story through the eyes of fictional characters. Um, certainly a lot of like the um, 
I think it's the diary of the Irish slave girl talking about slavery and the relationship with Britain and Ireland. She was in this fictional story, a slave who was, who was brought to the Caribbean, probably more powerfully tells a big picture truth about what was happening there. But a lot of those stories are based on what are they fundamentally based on? They're based on a writer going to historical reporting, historical truths or facts, I guess, um, and building a narrative that's meant to tell a bigger picture story. And I think that's, you know, it's it's a natural human way to, to, to consume things. But if you're talking about the day-to-day, you're talking about the year-to-year, the truth of what's happening in situations has great value to the present, to making decisions, to voting, to figuring out what to support. And it also becomes that basis for the bigger truth that can be told through history books, films, uh, and fictional writing. So I think that that bigger truth that you may get at easier in a fictional story can't exist without the hard truth or um, that exists on a day-to-day basis. And then the second part of your question, you're getting at like, does the, does the truth matter? I mean, this comes up in a lot of different ways currently in political and other discourse. One is like, you know, simply, can you even get to the truth? And I think the answer there really is you can get to the best truth you can through hardworking, through talking to people who are not like you, sometimes talking to people that you find deplorable. Um, Those things, looking at documents, doing other things like that can get you as close to the truth as possible. I think one of the challenges in journalism is it has been infiltrated by advocates. So the definition of what a journalist has is supposed to do when it comes to truth and objectivity has really become very murky. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, I, fi- I find it interesting that uh, you did not go into fiction. Back in like 2014, you were saying that might be a possibility. You've, you've gone back instead into journalism. You have a podcast it's called the silver uh silver sorry silver lining handbook and i have to ask you if you plagiarize that title Uh, (laughs) no it's just a play on the silver linings playbook um the so the i well two things there i think that um the easy answer to the fiction writing is over time i've just realized i am a terrible fiction writer <laughs> it's not compelling and and the real world is crazier than any fiction i could come up with um and then you know i never really i never really considered it's interesting you bring that point i never really considered um the podcast i'm doing as uh as journalism, even though, you know, I am trying to get to truths and I am getting to um, trying to get to deep, deeper truths about people, I've always really thought about it from sort of like a different perspective, which is sort of, you know, often like there are people who are going through things, who are dealing with things where they feel very terminally unique in their experiences. And there's so many people out there who have such knowledge and ideas um, 
that are really powerful that they can bring to the table. And I get to see that in my work. I get to see that in my conversations that I have with people like you. Um, and it's really more for me, it's about facilitating those stories and that information, which I guess is a form of, I suppose it's a form of journalism. Yes. Um, but yeah, yeah, I never yes. really thought of that. And our mail on the brink is brought to you by Peacock Pots. The crew at Peacock Pots is busy right now throwing pottery as we speak to be ready in time for your holiday shopping. Make sure to check out their brand new website coming soon at PeacockPots.com. And our mail on the brink is also brought to you by Orchard Air LLC, a multifaceted company that encompasses a state-of-the-art recording studio, event management services, and Karen's Place, a gorgeous guest house available as a short-term rental for up to 12. Donations from Orchard Air LLC profits every year go directly to the Alzheimer's Association. Well, some people, um, to switch topics again, some people have compared you to Donald Trump, Jason. You've lied about big things and little things, and uh, you've been called a sociopath by angry uh, executives of the New York Times. And uh, uh, it, you, anyway, lots of comparisons. You, you took on a, a big, scary, dangerous um, situation and pulled it off for a long time. That's, again, comparable to Donald Trump. So I'm wondering if you have any insights for journalists trying to cover him, a man who pathologically lies and is powerful. Yeah, I think I do. Um, so, you know, it's very funny. So years after the time scandal, I was uh, working as a coach at a psychological and psychiatric practice. And I went to the main forensic psychiatrist there and I was like, look, man, I'm really concerned. I'm a sociopath armchair diagnosing. Right. And he's like the exclusionary criteria to being a sociopath is caring about whether you're a sociopath. <laughs> um, but I, you know, one of the, one of the things that I felt about, uh, Trump and I wrote in 2016. Somebody from some magazine I can't remember asked me to write a brief article about this, and I'll tell you, like, you know, my my firm belief is it's really easy to catch one lie or two lies, but if you have the goal to lie about everything, people become desensitive to the lies. They stop expecting. A truth to uh, any kind of truth from you. So it becomes very hard to call out. The second thing is in 2016, our mainstream media was not ready to call things lies. They, they were prepared to call them misstatements or wrong information because of the ambiguity around it. And I think they've gotten much better at like reporting it out to the point where you know um, you, you're fairly certain that it's a, that it is a it, it is a lie, and I think Trump's strategy simply has been, uh, you know, and this again doesn't really come from my Times experience, but if you lie about everything, they'll be able to call you on nothing. The biggest liar often wins because you can recreate the narrative in any way you want. And all you need is a third of the population to believe your lies with voter turnout, to believe your lies for you to win. I mean, it's a simple, easy 
formula, definitely not my formula, but it's a simple, simple, easy formula that journalism just was not equipped to respond to. And I'm not 100% sure they're equipped to respond to it right now, but for a different reason, not so much because they're unwilling to call out lies, but because so much of journalism, as you know, is just under-resourced. And it's really hard to cover, to, to take the time to figure out what's consequential and what really matters and to truly cover it. Interesting. One of the things about uh, coverage uh, of the scandal that struck me was uh, your admission that you realized in the course of correcting some stories that your editors had no idea what was wrong or right. You didn't have to correct it. If you had never admitted you made a mistake, you 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 wouldn't have had to correct it. Yeah, I think this is the this is the story that you may maybe um may have heard or I may have shared, but it's a story where I had um gone out to do a man on the street, which is basically uh, where you go out, you interview a bunch of people, you get their reaction to things. And for whatever reason, I was not successful in my, because it's not relevant, all that relevant. Why? But, you know, I wasn't successful. And I went in what you'd normally do as a journalist in a situation like this is you check the wire services like the Associated Press and see if there's like a quote that you could use and you would attribute it to the Associated Press. You would say, you know, told the Associated Press. And I left the told the Associated Press out, had a bit of a panic after I filed it, thought in my head, oh Lord, the world is gonna collapse. They're gonna catch that and I'm gonna be dead. I thought about in that moment, telling the copy editors on the desk so they could correct it and they could add it. And I was convinced when I, I didn't, and I was convinced that night when I went home, that's, that's it. I'm fired. Someone's going to notice this and be fired. Um, and no one noticed it. And I think that that's one of the things that I've told people about ethical lapses in general, that there's this moment like where you make, you may think that you're doing something that's just a small ethical lapse, but once you cross that line and once you realize that there's not necessarily a punishment coming, it becomes easier and easier to do. It becomes e easier to lose your conscientiousness. And that's how sort of slippery slopes start. And so I, what I've always told journalism students too, who could never imagine seeing themselves in that kind of situation or that kind of place, I tell them this old story from the television show, the or not the, the movie, The Paper, which was about a paper that was like the New York Post. Michael Keaton plays the city editor and Robert Duvall plays the executive editor of the paper and they're sitting in a bar. And Robert Duvall comes up to Michael Keaton's character and says, you know, if somebody came to your house with a gun, put it to your wife's head and said, I'm going to shoot her if you don't quit your job at the sun, what would you say? And Keaton's character said, well, of course I'd quit my job at the sun. And Duvall's character says, well, that's the point. It never happens like that. There's no big grand decision in morality and ethics that you make 
and then all of a sudden you become a bad guy or someone doing something wrong. It's these little tiny steps, right? It's that extra hour at the office. It's that extra day that you go in that you're not spending with your kids. It's that minor shortcut that you take where you say, I talked to someone, even if you didn't put it in there and you didn't, um, that then lead down this slippery slope that uh, creates a lot of risks for you, your organizations, and more importantly, real risk for the public that's trusting you. Um, so I tell them to look out for the little things, like even the moment where you think about doing something like that. You uh, have talked about how ethical decision-making for journalists is harder or more fraught now because we have a lack of gatekeepers. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. And let me let me just step back there and say one thing, right? This whole idea of misinformation and disinformation making its way into the media is not particularly new. It's pretty old, maybe as old as the printing press. But, you know, yellow journalism is a good example. Like back in the late 1880s, you know, remember the Maine to hell with Spain became a rallying cry that led to the Spanish-American War because U.S. newspapers, um, in order to boost circulation, claimed without much evidence that uh, Spain was responsible for the destruction of the, I think it was in Havana, of the USS oh, Maine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the question to me is not so much why is there so much disinformation? Um, it's always had a business advantage, but the question is what has made the public so susceptible to it? And one of the things that I want to say before I dive into sort of like the ethical decision making is I think that one of the problems is that social media, the ease of being able to publish now through the web and social media um, has led to a lack of traditional gatekeepers. And that plays a huge role, you know, and, and the main example makes the point that it's not about having gatekeepers per se, it's about having responsible ones. And so as newspapers have declined and television stations have declined in terms of the resources that they're putting into news and social media has risen, it's really put the responsibility on individual actors who are posting things, writing about things, to really implement ethics. There's no organization behind them that has a code and has people that you can go to for advice. And for me though, so so I think in our future, this idea of ethical decision-making about what to communicate or what to publish or not is really going to be, because you know, I'm not going to get my wish and eliminate social media. It's really going to be on the, I mean, if there's a genie, I'll ask, but it's really going to be on the arms of um, individuals more. And for me, I, you know, when I was uh, uh, young and, and a cub in this field, um, I went off to this program at the Pointer Institute for Journalism Studies, and I'm not sure if Pointer is still around, but they were- They are. They, Okay, great. They they are an organization that, among other things, deals a lot with the questions of um, ethics and journalism. And I'll never forget, we had this instructor whose name was Bob Steele, and he was teaching us this basic concept of ethics and journalism. And he said, you know, 
essentially your job is to tell the truth and do the minimum maximum amount of good and the minimum amount of harm. And that when you're looking at ethical choices in journalism, it, you know, the first question to tell yourself or ask yourself is, am I telling the truth? Am I telling the truth in terms of the facts? Am I telling the truth in terms of this is the most um, important perspective or view on a particular story? And then am I doing the minimum amount of harm? And, you know, I give the example of all the times where we ran out to Brooklyn to report on some crime story and there were some horrible details that, you know, would have been really salacious or would have been really, you know, gotten good headlines. But what good did they do? Did they add a little color to the story, but they were going to lead to deep pain for other people? So I think that simple framework of asking yourself, like, is this the truth? Will it maximize good and will it minimize harm is a simple sort of ethical framework to operate under. I have a, a last question, Jason, and I'm asking mm -hmm. this from my uh, background as a mother, not a journalist. Mm -hmm. And that is you recently lost your mother. I'm very sorry. I know you were close and admired her. She was a teacher. She had a very big heart and a huge capacity for compassion from what I've read. And she must have been very proud of you at one point and then very upset with you at another. And I've always wondered, what did she say to you um, after you had been excluded from the New York Times in the worst possible way? Hmm. Um, so, I, you know, one thing when my mom passed away, which was in October, um, about a month before she was in the hospital, there were two brief hospital stays. And um, there was one moment where we were, me and my brother and my sister-in-law and my dad had all gone into the hospital to, um, to uh, talk to the doctors about, you know, should we do extraordinary care? And we didn't think my mom would be able to be a part of this conversation, but she happened to like wake up and was her chipper energetic self. And what she did was she went around the table, had us all answer what our opinion was. And then when we got to the end and she's like, we all agree. So uh, that's the plan to not do extraordinary care. And I just broke out crying. And my mom grabbed my hand, apropos of nothing, Rosemary. I, like this topic didn't even come up. And she said, you've done really, really well. And I'm You've done really, really well, and I love you, and I'm proud of you. There's nothing my mom ever did to make me doubt that she was proud of you, but she knew what was in my head. She knew the doubt that I had, right? The, the, the feeling that just doesn't come from the times, but you know, perhaps the times sparked it, that in my mind that people who are around me weren't proud of me. But I can't think of a moment where she she demonstrated that. I mean, her love, her concern for me, her concern for my well-being, um, you know, was was super powerful. And her concern that I got, you know, better in life, whether it was improving my character or improving my mental health or taking my meds, 
was always very focused on progress and improvement. And I think some of this, if you really look at it, and 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 let me tell you, one thing I walked out of her funeral realizing and knowing is that um, I want to be more like her. I want to be more loving. I want to be more compassionate. But if you look at the African-American experience, right, like my dad's family from the slave plantations of South Carolina and my mom, they were in the Caribbean and settled in the northern neck of Virginia. Um, there's a history of crisis. There is a history of disappointment. There is a history of struggle. And so I think that there, when people fall, there's a mentality on both sides of this family. It's that this too will be, this too shall pass and that love and learning are important ways of growing. So that's, that's the way it always was with her. Jason, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. We um, end the show with a toast. And ah. uh, I'm, I'm going to offer one now. Yes. <laughs> and this is uh, I, my toast today is to the journalists who get it right. To those yeah. who seek out the truth, who correct and apologize for mistakes, but then never stop going after the big important stories, often at risk to their life or to their personal relationships, and they keep democracy steady. Music for this episode of An Armeo on the Brink has been composed by David Keckley. His works are available through Pine Valley Press, a Williamstown, Massachusetts music publishing firm.